and welcome to another episode of Found, a conversation at the intersection of Christian faith and culture, where we always aim to find Jesus in the way we react and respond to our world. Found is part of the Saddleback family of podcasts. My name is Linda Tokar, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Brandon Bathauer. Uh, we are in the information age, aren't we? Uh, everything is at our fingertips, and the, the belief behind the information age is if you just know the right stuff, well, then you're going to change. You can know that Jesus says love your enemies, and so does knowing that make you love your enemies? Hey, Brandon. Well, hello, Linda. And it is not just us at the table today. Right? We have our boss, our leader, our uh, esteemed sage, Rob Jacobs, is also here at the table. What do you do with that type of an introduction? I, esteemed sage, I'll take boss. Always oh, sounds so ominous. <laughs> I know. I was going to go with friend, but you know. Yeah, I mean, I like friend. I, yeah. like, I like being friend your guys' good. friends. I like being a sage. That sounds pretty legit. You are a friend of the show and a sage of the show. I'll take sage. That sounds cool. Okay. Yeah. Boss sounds ugh. Yeah, I know. But it, I meant it in like the cool way. Like that's oh, okay. so boss. Like the Fonz or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, <laughs> the Gen Xers rise up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, today we are going to be talking about how we change and grow. Now, there are lots of approaches to making a change in our lives and a lot of theories about how we grow best. The web is full of life hacks. If you just do these three simple things, they'll revolutionize your life. You can be smarter, thinner, fitter, richer, happier if you just follow these steps or learn this new way of doing things. Now, sometimes these life hacks are effective in the short term, but long-term lasting change is way more elusive. We find ourselves frustrated, seemingly stuck, not able to move toward where we think we want to go or become who we think we want to be. And now part of the problem is that we haven't asked some really important questions, things like, who do I really want to become? What do I want to do? And why do I want to do it? Together, these three comprise what's called a telos, a picture of the ultimate end I'm aiming at. And without a clear telos, we either lose our way completely or we spend a whole lot of time pursuing things that won't actually take us where we wanted to go. Now, as followers of Jesus, our telos, the thing that we're aiming at, is becoming like him. Like him in character, which is often sort of summarized by the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Becoming like Jesus in the way we think, that's referred to sometimes as having the mind of Christ, and then becoming like him in the way we love and lived, conformed to the likeness of God's Son, as Paul describes it in Romans 8. So that's where we're headed, and I'm super excited for these episodes. We've been working on them for a while. So Brandon... <laughs> that is <laughs> your statement. <laughs> thought I'd say it. So Brandon, why don't you give us an overview of where we're going in this episode and the next? Yeah, so again, what we love doing uh, on this episode, or on Found, the podcast, is to triangulate different views. So we like to hold different perspectives together. That doesn't happen in a lot of settings, when you can kind of look at a viewpoint, see the values of it, see the realities of it, understand where it came from, but then understand kind of some of the ways that there are some pitfalls, or where the ways that it's incomplete. And so, man, we have seen so much of uh, the realities of people wanting to grow, wanting to grow more into the person of Christ within the church, but then just everybody wants to grow. And so we've been wrestling with this and saying, okay, it seems like a lot of people are committed to wanting to grow, 
but we do kind of come up short in so many ways. We don't grow the way we want to. And so it's like, hey, let's wrestle with some of the different viewpoints around this. So we're going to be focusing on three different views in how we grow. The first one we're going to call information equals transformation. The second view we're going to call do the right thing. Shout out to Spike Lee. Remember that? Yeah, That was a movie. Yes. Uh, (laughs) And the third one we're going to call power to the people. Uh, Shout out to John Lennon, actually. Look at this musical show. Yes. So information (laughs) equals transformation will be your first view. The second one is do the right thing. And the third viewpoint is power to the people. Now, the cool thing actually about these views is they kind of build on each other historically. The first, information equals transformation, really came to life in the Enlightenment. Uh, The second one, do the right thing, really showed itself in the Industrial Revolution. And the third, power to the people, really showed up in the social revolutions of the 20th century. Now, if I just suddenly lost you right there, don't worry. No history degree is required to listen to this, uh, but it just kind of helps us understand how these things build on on each other. We got some good ground to cover. Now, uh, you'll see how each of these viewpoints, they kind of interact with each other and that they're not bad in and of themselves. Uh, they are simply incomplete. I think of it like when you take a picture, um, but you focus on the wrong part of the picture, the whole composition kind of gets thrown off. The wrong things are in focus, and then the the things you really want to be central are are out of focus. And so what we want to do is kind of show, okay, this is where that's a little bit out of focus. This is why it's an incomplete picture. Mm-hmm. And then in the next episode, the next installment of this, we're going to talk about where we are now historically, what is facing us right now, and the decision we have to make as followers of Jesus of really how do we grow um, a, a way that we think would really be a really helpful way of understanding growth. But for now, let's kick off with our very first viewpoint, which is information equals transformation. Now, this view is pretty straightforward. Information equals transformation. You can probably guess what this viewpoint is. If you're uh, if you're swimming in the water we're all swimming in, uh, we are in the information age, aren't we? Uh, everything is at our fingertips, and the, the belief behind the information age is if you just know the right stuff, if you know the right things, if I can just get enough knowledge into your brain and you can just think rationally enough, well, then you're going to change. Mm-hmm. So if you want to change, the answer is reason. Now, think about our school systems. This is how we are all raised. It's like, mm-hmm. sit here for these 13 years, and we're going to have you instill information right. into you. We're going to transfer this information into your mind, and hopefully that will result in good citizens right. and people who are able to grow and be good people in the world and our society will be uplifted. This is the heart really of liberal studies. So uh, again, not a, not a bad picture, right? but um, a bit incomplete. We'll get into that. But first, where did this idea come from? Has reason always been the thing we've held on to as the key to everything? Or is that kind of developed over time? Rob, tell us a story. 
<laughs> All right. Well, let's let's yeah, let's tell a story. It's a long story, but we'll try and keep it short. <laughs> I, I do want to say first that we're we're kind of building on some ideas that I, I want to give credit to a couple books. One of them is the Solution of Choice by Dr. James Wilder and Dr. Marcus Warner. Um, and Jim Wilder's books have been super influential to me. They're I would recommend them. The other is The Connected Life by Dr. Todd Hall. We just had uh, Dr. Hall on uh, Doable Discipleship, so I would recommend that. We can find that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. But let's go all the way back to the Dark Ages. So in the Dark Ages, the church is always right, right? The church is the final decider, the judge, the arbiter of what's true and false. And so coming out in the early Christian faith, there is a connection between knowing about God and knowing God. So they're inseparable. The, the personal relationship with God is connected to the practical outworking of one's faith and ministry. And this was a seamless connection of the two. And intellectual reflection was not pursued wholly for its own sake. There was a connection between the experience and the knowledge. We would, we would want knowledge to experience um, God, we would want knowledge to help us learn to have a greater capacity for God. And so the experience and knowledge, those two things coming together was, was a part of the early church. And this is what the early church fathers were talking about. There was an understanding of the relation of the soul to God and the progress in Christian life. And so this was an understanding grounded in the experience of life as a follower of Jesus. So thinking about the early church fathers, there is a harmony between faith and reason. When, when Christianity emerges from the centuries-old Roman Empire, the early Christian scholars, they're faced with a question at the time. And, and that question is, what do you do with all this secular learning that we see all around us in this Roman, era, in this Roman region, in this Roman period? You have non-Christian, pagan Greek thinkers that the Romans love, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, the Stoics. And so what do you do with that? How do you, how do you put those together? Should you put those together? And so what happens is there's two conflicting attitudes that develop. And the first attitude is, hey, no harmony, keep it away, right? This is let's protect Christianity by disengaging from the intellectual traditions of that pagan Roman society, uh, the Roman empire that birthed these thinkers, the Greeks. We're going to keep that totally separate. That one of the famous thinkers in this line of thought was Tertullian, he said, what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Away with all the attempts to produce a modeled Christianity of Stoic, Platonic, and dialectical composition. He's getting excited. We want no curious disputations after possessing Christ Jesus. No inquisition after enjoying the gospel. With our faith, we desire no further belief. So Tertullian is like, no, there's nothing that can be learned from Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, and these other guys. Now, the other one was an attempt to harmonize and draw upon them. So this kind of foreshadows and points to the idea that knowledge and wisdom and the virtue of Christianity are all going to be connected. So we wanted, Christians want to draw on these people um, and, and, and adapt it in. Justin Marger, in his first apology, argues that the traces of truth that, that can be found in pagan thinkers, um, and they all have this word called, it's this degenerative word, the logos spermatakis. Is that how you, Brandon, this was, this came from, Brandon was the first to mention this word to me, and I thought, man, this is a scary word. I don't know. Can we say Spermitokos. This? Can we say this on found? 
Well, the spermie is a is a seed. A seed. Yeah. Okay, right. Like a <clears throat> seed of the lagos. And we digress. Anyways, uh, so in the, one of the pit thinkers in this line of think would be Philo. And he used this idea called spoiling the Egyptians. So as you think back to when God instructs Moses to plunder the wealthy Egyptians as they get ready to head out into the desert in Exodus, this is an idea that the Christians can take what is of value from the pagan thinkers and use it for their own purposes. So we want to take it and we can actually use it against them so that the wisdom that we find in Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, etc. can be an apologetic against them. So the rationale was that we seek wisdom from secular philosophers as a way to use it against them as an apologetic against them. Another idea that comes out of this is kind of that philosophy and science become what's known as the handmaids to theology. So that Christians come to adopt the fundamental view of philosophy and science as working for and working with um, some of our theology. Clement and Augustine are two thinkers um, at this time, and and Clement's arguing that the Greek poets and the philosophers actually prepare a way for the gospel. And so the, the thinking is that natural reason, that through natural reason, God guides these philosophers toward truth, even if it's kind of indirectly done. Um, you would see someone like Clement saying, Jewish law and Greek philosophy have been two rivers at whose confluence Christianity sprung forth. Like a new source, powerful enough to carry, along with its own waters, those two feeders. Mm. Now, Augustine at the time, he sees the, a deep connection and intertwining between theology and the spiritual life. And, and he thinks that the purpose of reason is to shed light on the truth of the doctrine and to deepen one's relationship and their experiential knowledge with God. So for Augustine, to truly understand reason and logic, one must have deep faith and a relationship with God. And this is reflected well in the saying that um, we've heard, maybe you've heard before, faith-seeking understanding, right? So again, putting together a marrying of the two, of the, the, the thinkers of the time with uh, Christian theology and thinking. Now, the fracture of the two ways of knowing um, that happens, eventually we get to this place where there's a split between theology and spirituality, but to, between the two ways of knowing. So let's, let's move to the Middle Ages. There's this guy, Boethius, who's kind of like the first scholastic who, guy who's trying, he's trying to draw and join faith and reason together. So he compiles the most significant contributions of history and reason in the early Middle Ages and is trying to put these things together. And, and this is called logica vitas. It's the old logic. So he's, he's thinking to master and assimilate this massive body of accumulated knowledge that they've come across coming out of the Roman Empire. So you have the theology of the early church fathers put together and blended with the wisdom of classical antiquity. So the early church fathers meets Socrates and Plato. Right. And so this requires a massive amount of this, this knowledge be translated and systematized. Like we really f- start to see the systematizing of knowledge become this goal that, um, that we'll see continue moving all through uh, the, as we move through history. So he, he says something as, as far as you are able, join faith to reason. And this is where you get someone like Thomas Aquinas who comes out of what's called the scholasticism movement. He's what's called a scholastic. These are the guys who are trying to systematize knowledge. And so you get Thomas Aquinas and his massive, I mean, this thing's huge, Summa Theologica. So let's jump ahead a little bit to the Renaissance. So again, we remember in the Dark Ages, the church is always right. 
And then the Renaissance, you see Copernicus and Galileo, they proved that the earth went around the sun, not vice versa. So what's that mean? The church was wrong. <laughs> so the idea that the church could be wrong and not know the truth or not have the whole truth, that idea starts to germinate in the, in the minds of many thinkers. Okay, so now we arrive at the Enlightenment. Right? So Enlightenment thinking was that knowledge was viewed as crucial a crucial tool for social progress and human emancipation. Enlightenment thinkers believe that the advancement of knowledge through reason, science, education, these will lead to a more just and equal society. So the acquisition, therefore, and the dissemination of knowledge was also seen as a means of breaking free from the constraints of tradition, superstition, dogma, any reliance on God and subjectivity. Basically, the Enlightenment thinkers are like, all the stuff the church always told us was right and was the only truth, Enlightenment thinkers are breaking that and breaking away from that because they want to promote individual autonomy and rational, in their words, rational thinking. So you get thinkers like Descartes, Locke, Hume, and Kant, and these guys are pushing and exploring the roles and limits of reason. The issue for them is intellectual truth. To them, this is central to their philosophy. They wanted to know what is true and how much truth was possible to know. Mm. So the Enlightenment approach to science says that all things have a natural or scientific cause. And therefore, because they all have a, a natural or scientific cause, meaning they have a known cause, they can be controlled to some extent by humans. So this is the idea that we might start to think about relegating faith and and the thinking of the early church fathers to be outside of what the enlightenment thinkers would call as knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so what's outside of those parameters of reason is relegated to this inferior domain that we just call faith, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's not provable. And so it's not scientific and that the deeper and more personal ways of knowing involving emotion, feelings, and intuition that we see so heavy in the early church fathers play almost no role in the knowing process in this rationalistic paradigm that you see from the Enlightenment thinkers. So someone like Descartes would say, I I now admit nothing that is not necessarily true. I am therefore, precisely speaking, only a thinking thing. That is a mind, understanding or reason terms whose signification was before unknown to me. I am, however, a real thing a really existent, but what thing? The answer was a thinking thing. Yeah, and on that note, like for Descartes, this is um, his first meditation. So he's trying to figure out, I'm going to doubt everything. Right. And then where, I'm, what what reality is there really? And for him, he's saying, well, okay, the only thing that I know exists right now is me thinking. Yeah. Therefore, I am a thinking thing. It was later on in kind of a question answer that he said the famous, I think, therefore I am. But this was kind of the moment in his meditations. And you can see the focus. His entire existence was built on his rationalistic thinking. It was because of his rationalistic thinking that he he viewed his existence even mattered was because of that. Yeah, he's a Christian actually, but he's just approaching his faith in a way that it has to be, everything has to be un, as believed as not being real, not mm-hmm. being true. And then I will only accept what I can prove. Sure. Um, 
And so, you know, this, this kind of sets up Christianity in, in, in an interesting thing because many people like start to pull from Descartes as like, Hey, that's, that's the way we should approach, should approach our thinking about our faith. It's, it's only what I can think. It's only what can be rationalized. Kant would say something like knowledge is not a means to any practical end, but an end in itself. And it is that which makes a possible source of pleasure and hence moral improvement. So again, you want to be morally improved? It's all about knowledge. John Locke in his essay concerning human understanding says that there's no universally acknowledged truths. Okay, so again, now we're really starting to move away from Christianity, right? There's no human, there's no universally acknowledged truth. Humans are born without any innate knowledge. And this is where you get the famous analogy of the tabula rosa, the mm-hmm. blank slate, right? So the mind is blank and it must be filled with ideas. And so we see this now then begin to play out uh, in, in what we see coming after. Yeah. So, the, I mean, the church <laughs> basically <laughs> jumps in and does this, right? We're like, yeah, we're rational. Like you were saying, th- a lot of these philosophers, these enlightenment philosophers were Christians. Um now there were Christians that started to jettison certain realities of sure. the of the Christian life, as they like again going back to the image, they focused so clearly mm-hmm. on one part of the image. Some of the other parts started getting blurry or left out altogether. Um, Lynn, why don't you walk through a little bit of kind of like how this then shows up in the church today? What have we how have we picked up on this? Well, sure. So the church always seems to reflect the culture it's swimming in. And so here, when knowledge and, and learning have become the primary source of, of knowing and, and changing and growing, the pastor becomes a professor. I mean, he is the nominated transferer of knowledge, and you receive that knowledge, and that's how we think we grow. It's just by, I need to hear the best sermons, I need to hear the best teaching, and as long as I've done that, then I must be okay, I must be on the right path. Um, The growth of seminaries. I mean, this is when we begin to see now people who want to grow, they, you know, now it's like if you want to teach and you want to, you want to be, go deeper in this, now you're going to go to seminary and just fill your mind with knowledge more and more and more because that's what we're, you know, that's the highest value. Yeah, you think about the shift from monastery to seminary. Right. So monastery, knowledge is a major part of that. Sure. But the religious elites, if you would, would go to a, a monastery, um, the monks would, and spend this time you know, studying scripture, practicing community, doing all these pieces. You can see that shift where then seminaries become front and center. That's where you go because it's about information. Right, because a monastery involved the disciplines and it involved, you know, it, it was a whole person experience. It was experiential. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas when you sit in a class and you are downloaded some information, that's a very different approach and you get a very different result. Um, we also see this in the denominations and the splits in the denominations because we begin to say, okay, well, this is what I believe. Oh, well, you think something different. Well, then you can't be a part of my my group because this is the truth that we, as we understand it. And, oh, you disagree? Well, then you better go you know, away from us because once knowledge is the the bar, if you disagree with my interpretation of what knowledge is, then we can't be on the same page anymore. So, yeah, you think about, um, how our, 
how we as evangelicals uh, have thought about even like catechism, you know, like this raising up of the next generation of Christians, um, it can often lean into, well, go through these classes. Right. Um, do these information transfer moments. Yeah. And as long as we can teach you the right doctrine, the right um, ideas, get the right information into you, then you're going to be set to right. be a follower of Jesus. Um, I think this was a little bit behind some of the Sunday school movement sure. uh, that the church picked up on. Again, you think about what is that Sunday school? You're basically just taking the school <laughs> process. Now, there's a lot of Sunday schools that have different approaches, but you know, you picture a bunch of kids sitting at desks being taught information as the this is how to prepare you for the Christian life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really buying into this enlightenment viewpoint that information is what creates transformation. Now, let's let's dig into this a little bit. Um, for you, uh, as a Christian walking through, you may fall into this viewpoint by basically entering and saying, "All right, I want I want some meat to chew on." Right. AKA, I need an episode like this found podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I want a bunch of thick information, and that is how Where I are will all change the footnotes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> And, and look, I've, I've been in that same thing. Like, I want to grow as a Christian. Well, what I need to do is gain a lot more information. I need to expand my, my thinking by just, you know, buying more books and filling my mind. And again, not wrong. Rob just looked at me like real sad because... I love books. <laughs> we all have a lot of books. <laughs> yeah. So uh, not bad. But let's go into the analysis of, of this a little bit. Like, okay, so where is this a really helpful viewpoint? Uh, and then where are there some pitfalls that can kind of, we can start falling into some problems as we overemphasize information as the way that we grow? Okay, so this is not a wrong view that we need knowledge. The Bible talks about this in many places. I had to narrow it down. Well, this very podcast is knowledge. Right, exactly. So Second Peter 1 verse 2 says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through what? The knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty easy to see it is tying grace and peace to how do we, how do we get to that space? Through knowledge. If you took that, if you just went there and said, well, how do I get to know God? Through knowledge. It's right there. And there's a lot of, you know, you will know the truth and it will set you free um, Luke wrote, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. So knowledge is important, but we have to do more than know. We have to do what it is that we've learned. Um, Jesus told a story in um, Matthew 7 or a parable, and we call it the wise and foolish builders. He says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So the difference between the the wise and foolish builder is not the presence of the storm. Mm-hmm. It's not the crisis and the challenges of life. It's both hearing and doing what Jesus has said. That is where 
the power for life comes from, not just knowing it. Yeah, you know, as you read that Second Peter verse, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. What what will happen if we are over-influenced by this enlightenment viewpoint is that we will read that word knowledge as, do I have cognitive informational exactly. ownership of who God is and of who the Lord Jesus mm-hmm. Christ is? Mm-hmm. But shout out to episode one of Found. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That is a relational reality. Sure. Not simply a cognitive or rationalistic mm-hmm. um, environment. And so we'll get to that. We're hinting at where we're going next episode. But I think it's important to know that even when we say the word knowledge, we have, we've bent that word to a rationalistic exactly. understanding mm-hmm. because of the enlightenment water that we're all swimming mm-hmm. in. And mm-hmm. the thing about the knowledge is like it can be, it can be measured. And so we really can see this in, in some of our church today. It's like how many books have you read? How many Bible studies have you done? How many chapters of the Bible did you read today? What reading plan are you on? It's, it's, you can metric size knowledge of and miss the relationship Mm -hmm. sure sometimes we get caught on metrics and what do you know but if we're not living it then it Mm -hmm. yeah because that enlightenment philosophy that we just talked about told us that the ability to reason is what makes us human right instead of you know being an image of god we're like well it's what we know and so then you get this this like you mentioned linda the seminary start to make they departmentalize theology it becomes a, a department with department heads and professors and it, you just keep separating knowledge out you know away further and further from the church and Jesus um, and everything just becomes a propositional truth and a systematic way of thinking about things and you start to miss you know the Jesus is like right there with you right um, the whole and, relational you know, component to, yeah we just we become so problem focused and analytical that we miss like the thing that you know is most important yeah. Well, playing with this image of like the the photograph, you know, that uh, focusing on the wrong thing, just to kind of emphasize what happens when you focus, when you over-focus on reason and rationality. Uh, the first bit is like evil. The worst thing mm-hmm. that can happen is falsehood or heresy. Mm-hmm. So for a lot of the church, I mean, you read centuries worth of work and it was largely about wrestling with certain heresies, which was largely around, um, yes, it's perspective stuff that they were wrestling with, but a lot of it was these um, these cognitive assents to a certain set of logical principles, and we're wrestling with those. Uh, all the while, it felt like the heart of the church so slowly was dying, actually, during that time. <laughs> right. I you mean, know. and thank goodness for those early church fathers and those thinkers who were doing so much of the wrestling, and that's where creeds come from. But we're not saved by a creed. Right. right? We're saved by a Savior. Exactly. So the further we move away from that, the fuzzier the image gets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things as I was thinking through and preparing for this episode, you know, you mentioned the fact that enlightenment thinkers they wanted only what could be confirmed by their five senses right only what they could observe and sometimes when we as believers we think you know like what we've been saying that knowledge increases therefore your life changes and so we'll dig and study and exegete a text to death to try to get every ounce of knowledge out of it and then believe that we've grown but just simply by knowing it but the role of the Holy Spirit has become ancillary at that point because you can't, 
you know, he's not observable that way. He's not part of that, but he's not re- considered a requirement. If all you have to do is no, then the Holy Spirit is almost left out. And that trips the trap that enlightenment thinking sets for us because we can actually only understand God's word because of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, right? Yes. Like (laughs) what you're saying, Linda, is basically you can know that Jesus says love your enemies. And so does knowing that make you love your enemies? No. (laughs) Nope. Nope. You need the Holy Spirit. Paul's super clear about that. Simply amassing knowledge doesn't make us mature. It doesn't make us grow. It makes us smart, but it can also make us prideful or judgmental or critical. The other thing that I was thinking about is that no matter how much scripture we learn, there will always be things that fit into the category of mystery. God is eternal. He is, you know, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. So there will always be things that we can't understand, but which must be received by faith or believed by faith. The bar for what is true cannot be my ability to understand it or grasp it with one of my five senses. That is just because that is not possible does not mean it's not true. That's so good. So, all right. So look, (laughs) we've we've got this enlightenment and yes, this is sometimes what's helpful is we make a caricature a little bit of the viewpoint. And so you may be going, obviously that's me. Obviously I know that there's way more to life than just uh, cognitive assent than just that logical proposition one thing just to keep in mind, you may be over-influenced by this viewpoint if if when you really are thinking through your growth personally, your answer immediately goes to, and if you're just honest with yourself, your, your answer goes to, I just need more content. I just mm. need to learn more. I need more mm. information. And that that's, that's my step forward. So if that's the place you normally go, you may be over-influenced by this view. Uh, within this viewpoint, and this is going to sound a little bit strange, I think every viewpoint creates an idol. An idol is oh. a false god, a false direction that we lift up, something that is good, but we lift it up higher than it ought to be lifted up. I think truth uh, becomes kind of bent in this, and we lift it up as the most important uh, rather than the one who is the truth. Right. We can make an idol actually of the Bible. Mm. where the Bible becomes our God rather than the story we get wrapped in up in and transformed by in our love and right. connection to God. And so that's where it starts getting out of order because it's, I need to know the right things. So I'm not going to spend time with God. I'm going to spend time with the Bible and I'm going to learn all this stuff. And by the end of your 20, 30 minutes a day reading the Bible, you've never once said Hello to your creator. That may be that you're being over-influenced by this view. Mm, so good. And then I would say the last one I think is um, if I, I think there's a, also a kind of a Pharisee in every one of these viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I think in this viewpoint, the Pharisee is a drive for certainty that questions that mystery is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's something you want to be hesitant about. That when we talk about believing in Jesus, that word belief is not a commitment of our life, a, a faithfulness to. It's only, do you commit to this correct list of propositions? And if mm-hmm. so, then you're in. Otherwise, you're out. Um, I think that's where we can, 
I think that's a place where we start to become over-influenced by this mm-hmm. view. Mm-hmm. And that picture, all these are good things, but that picture starts to get out of focus. Sure. Sure. All right. There it is. Information does not equal transformation, friends. It is a part of it. It is not the whole of it. Let's move on to the second viewpoint. We are entitling it, Do the Right Thing. All right, do the right thing. The way that we're describing this viewpoint is it's a viewpoint that moves from, it's just information to making the right decision making the right choice. If you can just make the right decisions and do the right things, then your character will change. Your heart will change. You will become more like Jesus. Now, we see this really in so many places around us. It is all about building that habit. If you can just build this habit, get just use that willpower as hard as you can to build that habit in your life, no matter what, your character will change. Uh, It's that Nike, right? Just do it. Get out there, make that right decision, and you will be able to do it. We we teach about ethics as a, well, you know, uh, yes, knowing the right thing is important, but it's about putting it into practice. It's do that thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Pharisees, right? They did this of basically like, here are your list of rules. It's not just about knowing the right things. The Pharisees were like, you better do it. Follow yeah. these rules. Follow these laws. Mm-hmm. Follow this way of life. Um, the internet is filled with life hacks. Uh, I believe the most searched thing on YouTube is how to blank because mm-hmm. it's about mm-hmm. action. It's about doing. It's about decision making. Uh, there are lifestyle apps that are blown up everywhere right now mm-hmm. that say instead of scrolling, use this thing to help you build these right habits, these right attitudes, yep. these right... Um, decisions into your mind. You think about gym memberships. What we really pay for in gym membership is the community aspect. I don't pay for a gym membership, so I can't say we, let's be honest. Uh, (laughs) But to feel the community atmosphere, people support, and then to have that coach, that trainer. Mm -hmm. And what is that trainer doing? Telling you, here are the right decisions to make. Commit to them, do them. Um, So that's kind of the viewpoint. I hope that's clear. I don't know if Mm -hmm. anyone wants to add anything to that kind of cultural reality we're living in. I I think a lot of those apps help us with something around called accountability. Yes. So Mm -hmm. it's it's so important in the doing. I have to have someone or something holding me accountable for the doing. Yes. Yep. So so again, the viewpoint here, do the right thing. So it's not just about knowing, do it. Now, where does this come from? What's the background behind this viewpoint? So as we move on from the enlightenment, we move it, the enlightenment thinkers are realizing, you know, it turns out I know a lot of things and I don't do the right things. So <laughs> there's a disconnect. So you get another uh, line of reasoning coming out of the Enlightenment, that individual reason and rationality in making choices and de- decisions is where we need to start uh, putting our focus. And this sees the cultivation of good habits as being a key component of personal development. So Enlightenment thinkers in this, you know, moving on, start to think that Habits can be developed through individual effort and discipleship. Um, Discipline becomes very important. Philosophers argued whether or not uh, one believed in truth made no difference until one made a choice. Mm. 
So free will, choices, and habit, these become the central questions as we move into kind of this second wave of the Enlightenment. Um, And so what arises then, there must be two paths out out of moral rules. Because remember, we're trying to escape the the faith only, the mystery stuff. And we need, you know, rational thinking. But the thinking's not enough because now we're seeing we need some sort of action. Enlightenment thinkers, you know, these guys are not eager to have God's moral rules continue to govern their behavior. So they, they kind of create two escape routes. One is something called determinism. And this approach says that we're creatures of natural laws, so that our drives, our instincts, our passions, our affections, our chemistry, the energy that flows from us is simply a result of the laws of nature. And this would be someone like Thomas Hobbes, who believes that free will is an illusion, in fact, that all human actions are ultimately determined by prior causes, that people do not choose their actions freely, that they're compelled by their desires or their aversions, that freedom for Hobbes is simply the ability to do what one desires without any external impediments. And Einstein would fall into this, that the the laws of quantum physics will determine what will occur. Um, Later on, you see someone like B.F. Skinner, Um, a psychologist behaviorist who wrote a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity, who says that human choices were determined by natural forces beyond their control. So these guys, the determinists are like, it's all about choice, but you don't really even have a choice. Right. (laughs) Right. So then the indeterminists, um, these are people like Descartes and William James and others, and they developed the idea that a free human will was central, in fact, to personal growth and life change, that they made choice and chance the primary forces that shape our behavior. William James, who was an early American psychologist and philosopher, wrote that the greatest revolution of our generation is the discovery that human beings, by changing the inner attitudes of their mind, can change the outer aspects of their lives. Descartes says, conquer yourself rather than the world. Mm. So this is where you see choice and decision become primary in this line of thinking. Someone like Thomas Jefferson, one of the founders of this new nation, these guys who can literally with their own will and choice forge a new nation, says that government is best, uh, sorry, that government is best which governs the least because it's people's discipline. It allows people to discipline themselves. Mm -hmm. He says, do you want to know who you are? Don't ask, act. Action will delineate and define you, right? So again, action, habit, choice, will. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said, your net worth to the world is usually determined by what remains after your bad habits are subtracted from your good ones. Yikes. (laughs) That's so Ben Franklin. (laughs) Moral algebra. Uh, Andrew Carnegie, so like an industrial, think of the man who created the Carnegie Steel Company in the United States Steel later on, one that becomes one of the richest men in the in America, says, if you want to be happy, set a goal that commands your thoughts, liberates your energy, and inspires your hopes. He also said, all human beings can alter their lives by altering their attitudes. So these, this line of thinking that emerges, you see people who believe it is their choices, their decisions, and their habits that become the primary means to pursuing their faith. And that, and that these guys can shape themselves, but not only shape themselves, they can shape the world around them. They, they have the power to remake themselves and thus remake the world through their habits, 
choices and decisions. Yeah, this is like the beauty, right, of the Industrial Revolution, right, that you have from the Enlightenment a bunch of philosophers who, what do philosophers do? They sit around and think. Uh, but then they thought and they said, wait, wait a second, we, we can actually bring some clarity to this world, this very confused world. And the industrialists picked up on that and were like, well, we can put this into action. So, like, what if we used what we know about the air and uh, and force and we built a plane that could fly for the very first time? And, mm-hmm. you know, like, you can see the excitement that comes with that of, like, okay, if we know stuff, great, that's fine. You can, philosophers, you guys can all sit around. But, like, we can do stuff with all the stuff that we know and we can reshape the entire world. Mm-hmm. We can we can do everything. Here we are shooting rockets off to space, and this is this is awesome. Like mm-hmm. we're doing stuff with our knowledge now. Um, now this shows up, I think, in so many ways uh, within our church world. This viewpoint mm-hmm. that uh, we've adopted, I think, so much of this that's about decision and choice and action. You may be like, yeah, that's exactly what transformation is. <laughs> what else would it be? Because <laughs> so much of the water we're swimming in, right? So. Uh, habit building is a huge and central piece to how we think about how we grow as followers of Jesus. There's uh, what what we like to call the church church checklist. Right. Right. Of like, okay, here are the things you're supposed to do. You know, show up on the weekend, be in the small group, show up to the classes, do the thing, right. do this thing, serve in this ministry. Right. And if you do the right things, well, then your character will just like change. Right. Right. And in this in this viewpoint, the pastor ends up being like a life coach, right? Mm -hmm. Three easy steps to happiness, four easy steps to joy. And it's like, they're just like, okay, if you do these things, these four or five things, you're going to have that thing that you want. Mm -hmm. And so we begin to, we move away from, um, we're not talking about, well, how is the spirit going to change you? It's just, you're going to do this checklist (laughs) and you're going to be transformed. And there's excitement in that, right? Because I can do it. I have power there, right? It's not the indeterminists or the determinists where right. it's just like, well, I, I don't know. The Holy Spirit didn't change me, so I guess I just have to sit around and hope that someday he will. Right. It's like I can take the power into my hands and I can do this thing. That's right. so exciting. And just by the sheer work of my will, by the end of this, I'm going to be like a, a Christian hero. You right. know, I'm going to be awesome. Yeah, you can see it happening. Yeah. Right? Like it's it's it's. it's it's visible. Mm-hmm. Knowledge is a little less visible, right? Yeah. It's like it's somewhere in there, but man, habit and decisions, you can see the impact of it immediately. Like, right. Um, so it, it does create that sense of like, man, I really do have some power here. You know. Well, and we value culturally, like we like to see, you know, wow, that person's really, you know, they've got a deep faith. How do I know? Because they do this, they do this, they do, you know, we evaluate people based on what we see them doing. And so we fall into that. One of the things when I was researching the the period of time that Rob just sort of described, it coincided with a spiritual revival called the Second Great Awakening, and which emphasized doing good works and perfecting mankind through those good works. That was kind of what was happening. One of the main ministers of that time was a guy named Charles Finney, and he said that religion is something to do, not something to wait for. So he was very committed to social reform, including things like temperance and the abolition of slavery. So these became really important themes during the same time frame, kind of parallel to the history that Rob was just talking about. 
And during these revivals, it was interesting because the emphasis on sanctification by doing was so strong that church membership actually improved social standing. Oh, they're a committed member of their church and they're doing all these good things. That was seen as a high value because it was it was visible, kind of what you were saying a minute ago, Rob. And religious practice proved that a person had the values and determination and discipline to succeed in society. So church membership became linked to social mobility, which <laughs> kind of an amazing thought, right? Well, it's the old Protestant work ethic as sure. it's thrown out there, right? That this is a thing that's fed into the Protestantism was this like, you can do this. So just grip, use that will and put things into, into reality. I mean, I think about even John Wesley yeah. um, and Methodism, this mm-hmm. practice of, okay, you're going to get into these smaller groups and you're going to work through this stuff together and you're going to keep each other accountable and you're going to do these things. And he himself, I mean, the circuit rider he was, the amount of miles he logged on his horse going from community to community to help support, that's driven by a mindset of like, there is power in the will mm-hmm. to change character, and we have a major part to play. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was this also, this time in history also saw the rise of what's called voluntarism. So you had the American Bible Society, the American Sunday School Union, the American Track Society. We're going to spread the biblical message and our moral character and the way to do things right. You know, the, that was what these groups were committed to was do, do, do. And we're going to actually organize and do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And, and that is how we're going to spread the gospel. Mm-hmm. And um, the temperance movement as well, right? Right. Like, this was a huge thing of uh, leading up to the prohibition of 1920s where it's like, no, no, we're going to, we're going to be holy. The holiness movement is also what's kind of tied into this is, mm-hmm. you know, don't, don't drink, don't be part of these communities because again, that's habits, that's actions, and that is how your character is changed. Um, now, that's a little bit of this reality. Let's let's kind of look at it a little bit. Where Where is this viewpoint? Obviously, this is embedded in a lot of what we do as a church. Honestly, as a team, we have all of these resources to help people build habits of Bible right. reading and prayer. So hopefully there's some good in this. Yeah, there's great. I mean, we, we <laughs> teach, let's talk about we, this. We, we teach one of the classes every month. Discover your purpose too is for habits. Right. You know, so we, there is again, habits, decision. These are, these are good things. They're excellent things. I mean, but I think anybody that's walked with Jesus for any length of time knows that you can do all the things and not actually know him. I mean, I think Jesus had a conversation with some people that went something like, but didn't we do this and this and this, all these things? And he's like, I never knew you. Yeah. So, um, you know, part of it is in the end goal. So the end goal can often be on the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think about Jesus saying, uh, calling the Pharisees who are doing everything right, right, whitewashed tombs. Yeah. Which is really tough. Yeah. I mean, if I had a I had to Ugh. roast somebody to call them a whitewashed tomb is kind of tough. Really clean on the outside, rotten bones on the inside. Same thing with the cup, right? Like don't don't clean the outside of the cup first. That's not the part the food goes in. <laughs> like it's the inside of the cup. So this is Jesus kind of saying, like, hey, I got a challenge here a little bit. Like you can clean and have all your actions on the outside look really good. Mm-hmm. This is a lot of the challenge of the holiness movement is you could have all the right rules, uh, carry out the right actions, but man, like 
their hearts were far from me. Well, and the idea of whitewashed tomb, tombs were not just icky, but they were unclean, unholy, separate from God. So to call somebody a whitewashed tomb is saying more than just like you're a mess on the inside. It's saying you're not even part of me. Like you are separate from me. So it's... it's Where's the good in this, Linda? Walk us through some scripture where there's some okay, good. Sure. I'd love to. So obviously the Bible is clear that we do need to live out our faith. Like just knowing isn't enough. We got to do it. James one twenty two, very well-known verse. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I love that James makes the note that if you only know and do not do, you are deceived. You think you're growing. You think you are on the right track, but if you're not living it out, that's actually a problem. And it goes back to that verse that uh, what Jesus was sharing before. If you build your house exactly. on the sand, if you're not, if you just know it, but you're not doing it. So that's clearly like, it makes sense that we, that these build on each other, that you start with knowledge and then you move to, okay, let's do it. Right. For sure. I think, you know, we, we do need to know things. We do need to live them out. Um, but the reality of when we know, and even when we try to make the best choices we can, even when we are intentionally attempting to make good choices, we don't always do it. And I think one of my favorite passages, just because I relate to it so well, it comes out of Romans 7. Um, I had a pastor that called it the Romans 7 experience. And it was just this Paul's writing. And I just love this. He's like, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And then he goes on to say, you know, it's sin living in me and, and I just don't understand. But he's basically, he's going after this idea that I want to make good choices. I know the right choices to make. And we're talking about the Apostle Paul, somebody that we would all agree was probably, I mean, he was walking with Jesus. He was probably pretty mature in his faith. He'd gone through a lot of things. You would think by the time he's writing this, he'd probably have figured out how to make the right choices. He knew the right things. He should be making the right choices. And after all that time, he still is saying, I don't know what the heck is wrong with me. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not even making the right choices that I know I need to make. And I consistently make the choices that I don't even want to make. So something else is going on. And so I just, you know, this idea that if you just make the right choices, that is a whole lot easier said than done. And so you can make what look like the right choices and your heart can be far from God, but you can also intend fully to make the right choices and still not make them. So that's why this is an incomplete view because clearly even somebody like the Apostle Paul wasn't able to do that consistently and live the kind of life he wanted to live all the time. And we all say amen Amen. because, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've set a New Year's resolution before ever. Yeah. But again, that <laughs> viewpoint starts with I have the I have the ability to choose, which scripture has that, right? Joshua twenty four fifteen. Choose this day whom you will serve. Right. So we do have choice in the matter. We do have decision. Other people may disagree with me. Sorry I was about say, that. Isn't there uh, Calvinism, Lutheranism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about it, but all right. We'll, we'll, who really has the will and the choice here? We'll, we'll talk offline. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I would say that uh we then try, we lean into that choice piece, right? And we say, okay, I'm going to lose this much weight by whatever I'm going to build this habit in. And what happens? The difficult thing about the will is I think about it like a, uh, somebody has explained this, Ken Ba has explained it like a little 
a noodle, one of those floaty noodles in the pool yeah. that you can stand on for like a little bit, right? But it's fighting to come back up to the surface. And right. as yeah, soon the, as you let off the gas. The beach ball underwater. Yes. yes it'll beach. pop up to the surface. That's how the willpower works. So it's got power. It's definitely got power to change, but it's more in a catalytic way. Like it can be a catalyzing force to do other types of transformation in our lives. But it if you're relying entirely on it, you're going to mm-hmm. come up short. It never lasts. And, you know, a lot another analogy is like Will is like a muscle. And it just, at a certain point, you just run out of it. Mm-hmm. It's, there's, it's not an, an inexhaustible source. Mm-hmm. That's right. So uh, let's summarize this viewpoint. Yeah? Yeah. Yep. So uh, you may be over-influenced by this view. Um, if what is evil, if all that is wrong is bad decisions. Mm. Um, if when you think about all that God is uh, seeking to make right, if you boil that down to only sin and sin being the th- bad thing you did, mm-hmm. this may be an overemphasis of this viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Now, the bad stuff we do is a part of the evil and the incompleteness in this world, all the ways that God is going to redeem and restore. But when we have this incomplete picture, we emphasize that as everything. Right. um, Because what is the other side of that? The other side of that is, well, I have all the power and the will to make a good decision. So if I don't, that is the entirety of everything wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as that idol uh, that we can make of this. Again, these are good things that get put out of order and we worship that rather than God. I think it's disciplines. Mm, um, mm-hmm. The disciplines of, man, are you doing your Bible reading? Are you doing your praying? Are you being silent before him? Are you doing the Sabbath? And I help run the retreat center here yeah. at Saddleback Church. And uh, we teach the disciplines. These Absolutely. are deeply valuable things. But if they become God, they are not good masters. Right. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Um, Me- means not ends. Yes. Mm-hmm. They will destroy you. You mm-hmm. will be filled with guilt and brokenness and shame. Um, yes. Shame. And so that can become an idol when decisions become the center of everything that we do. And then finally, the the kind of Pharisee part in this mm-hmm. viewpoint. So again, you're maybe over kind of over influenced by this view. If you start viewing yourself as your mistakes. Mm, those mm-hmm. few times you made the decision incorrectly or the often time that you make your decision incorrectly and you walk around and your identity is tied to those mistakes. Yeah. You've bought into the viewpoint that all of the weight is on your shoulders mm. and it is all about the will that you bring. And if you're not making good decisions, then you're hopeless. Mm. And this is not true. Right. This is this is a bad. Uh, this becomes a bad king over you when um, decisions become everything. So yeah, do the right thing. It's a good thing mm-hmm. to actually put these things into practice. Absolutely. But we can create these worldviews where it's mm-hmm. all about that action. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's uh, finally for this episode we're going to move on to the very last viewpoint, uh, which we're calling power to the people.
All right, power to the people. Now, this is the third viewpoint we're going to be working through today. And uh, this viewpoint really came to being, I would say, over the, the last 50 to 100 years. See, here's the thing. Out of... Um, out of the Enlightenment, right, we were there. Then we went into, like, the Industrial Revolution. So we got the Enlightenment philosophers sitting around thinking with their funny little wigs. Then we go to the Industrial Revolution, and you got these, like, big titans of industry. And then we thought, well, then we changed. This solved all the problems. We, we shaped the world into what we want it to be. And then World War I happened. Mm. And then World War II happened. Mm-hmm. And we realized... We are a mess still. <laughs> and maybe you've come to the same realization about yourself. Like, I know the things. I went to the right classes. And then, you know, what? I did the things. And I'm still a mess. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as big of a mess as World War One, But, you know, you're still, we're all kind of a bit of a mess inside still. And so it was like, all right, what do we do with this? Where do mm-hmm. we go with this viewpoint? And this viewpoint says that it's all about relying on a power bigger than you that you get to the point you go I can't figure this out myself I need to rely on something that will give me the power to change Mm -hmm. change myself and change this world we're going to be talking about people like uh Friedrich Nietzsche and some other thinkers that um that kind of spoke into this viewpoint but if you think about today This is all about drawing on something outside of me. So whether that is my involvement in the right tribe, Mm -hmm. um, the right political tribe or economic tribe or social tribe, I'm going to say this is who I'm identified by. And when I group into this tribe, then I have this special power that can allow me to change me and change this world. It may be uh, there's been this growing kind of focus on psychedelics and this leaning into, well, if we can just have these these special experiences that allow us to transcend ourselves, it's like we're getting connected to the universe. And so we're relying on something that is bigger than us. We even see this in kind of this reliance on motivational speaking. Sure. Because just by myself, if I get the right knowledge and the right decisions, that's all good, but I need some extra power. I need some extra oomph to actually make these changes in our lives. Um, I mean, a major one that we've leaned into since the Industrial Revolution is that we as a society have relied so heavily on technology, a power that is outside of us that we can just rely on that will help us over that hill, mm-hmm. and then I can experience the change and the growth that I want. So I'm going to rely on this, whatever technology is, that new app, that new capability. None of this episode was written with chat GPT, <laughs> AI help. Um, maybe a few quotes were actually brought up with them. I don't know. But this is reliance, right, on some other bigger power. Experiences the political movements. I can't change me, but I can change the world if I'm a part of this movement Mm -hmm. and I hold that sign or I say that chant or I put on that bumper sticker, then change Mm -hmm. will come in me and in this world. So this is a reliance on a power that is bigger than me because we realize we can't do it ourselves. We need something more. We need a little extra gas in the tank. Mm -hmm. Where does this come from? How has this emerged? 
Well, as you have you been listening to the episode, right? We had the Enlightenment thinkers who who focus on knowledge, and then you got another set of thinkers who realize, man, knowing things didn't fix anything, and right. so they start to focus on you know the choices and the decisions and willpower, and then you start to realize, well, I couldn't make all the choices and decisions and willpower that I needed to make, and so the line of thinking comes to this post Enlightenment, maybe even post modernist view. That power is the way, that individual agency, self-determination, political freedom, and often in opposition to the traditional sources of authority, mm-hmm. become the preeminent way to, to create change. This is the will to power, the idea that the, we have a desire to have the power to create achievement, ambition, um, accomplishment, and accolades. And so this, this post-enlightenment view on power is marked by a deep skepticism toward traditional sources of authority. Certainly the Bible would just be out. Um, heightened focus on individual autonomy and freedom. That will is, the, is only important if it leads to the power to take action and get results. So um, Brandon mentioned Nietzsche already. This is, his idea is this concept of will to power. Um, He saw power as central, the central driving force in human life. And he believed that individuals should seek to overcome oppressive power structures and create their own values. In his famous book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, I'm pronouncing that wrong, but roll. He said, I teach you the overman. Man is something that shall be overcome. What have you done to overcome him? Hmm. So he believes in this fundamental drive of that all beings have is the will to exert power over their environment. According to Nietzsche, the will to power is the fundamental aspect of human nature. It's the driving force behind all our action. Another thinker in this line, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, believes that power should rest in the hands of the people rather than the ruling elite. So again, you see someone who's looking toward political power as being the most important thing and that true freedom can only be achieved through direct participation in political decision-making. His his famous quote, freedom is the power to choose our own chains. Um, So in this view, power is what provides choice Mm. and that's the way we can change. Yeah, and then I think about... um uh, some postmodern thinkers like uh, Michel Foucault and um, Derrida, and- yeah, Derrida, who would basically say, "All right, who is the one setting the meta narrative? Because whoever sets that is the one that's uh, basically setting reality. Mm-hmm. And so, who are the people that are in power that choose what is the big picture? Because whoever decides the big picture, they're the ones who are kind of setting what things are going to be. And so." The goal is you rise up to power. Yeah, you get to be those people. It. Deconstruct what's been given to you, what you've believed previously. Yep. And then rise up mm-hmm. and kind of flip that narrative, and you get to set that that meta narrative. And so, as you can see, there's there's a lot there's a political strain on this, but then you also think there are during this time there's also an emergence of a lot of kind of like spiritualists. You know, you saw this revival of Eastern thought mm-hmm. in the West where there's this thought of like, you know, just rely on the deep inner self. There's rely on the universe. There's this sense of like, we can't do it on our own. 
So you can seek after political power. You can seek after spiritual power. You can seek after these uh, community kind of power or this kind of, um, you know, even some senses of going back to to uh, kind of pre, pre-enlightenment uh, community sense of traditions and that type of thing. Like I'm going to rely on these different spaces and that is where change is going to come. Mm-hmm. Now, it's an interesting thing, right? When you think about what has happened in the church and right. how we've responded to this. Um, I think we started to think about power this way too. We were like, okay, well, we can't, we, we know the right things. Okay, that didn't solve it. Okay, we're doing all the right things. Well, that didn't solve it either. Well, what we needed to rely on, we got the best power. <laughs> we got Holy Spirit power. We got the power of revival. We got the power of of kind of the the revolution of the Jesus movement in the world. So we're going to rely on that, mm-hmm. and then change will come. And I think we begin to see that because there were movements where the emphasis was on these visible demonstrations, like, do you have the Holy Spirit's power? (laughs) You know, and how can you demonstrate that? Because if you can, then you're going to be able to change and you're going to be able to be a change agent. Um, But that got really dangerous, right? Because not everybody has those, those experiences the same way. So things like miracles or speaking in tongues and all these different things, those are evidences of the Spirit's power, but they are not the only evidence that you have the Spirit's power. Yeah, right. So you have on one side, you have, okay, transformation comes in, yeah, this kind of charismatic renewal that mm-hmm, happened mm-hmm. In, in many ways. Um, and so much good is of done course. there. But again, it's showing an emphasis on a certain viewpoint. And mm-hmm. so um, we're relying on the Spirit. And so now it's not so much about my character, but it's now the expression of the power of God through me. Um, right. in healing, mm-hmm. in miracles, in speaking in tongues, in some of these places. And then and then, you've had something now shift as well, and I think we're all in this water, where then there's the power of relying on that special experience with mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. And so we have that in our, in a weekend service or in a, in a worship gathering where if the, if the, music and the, this moment, this experience can bring me to a higher plane, well, then I am now kind of in the space of the power of God, and maybe change will come that way. And, yeah. then, I, and then I would present the other side of it, too. So you've got this like kind of corporate gathering, very expressive, mm-hmm. but then I think we also do it in more contemplative spaces by like, did you have that special encounter with God when you were quiet with him? Right. When you were doing that discipline, did you go to that retreat and you are now coming down off the mountain and you're glowing because you now had that special experience with him? Now, those things happen. We do right. have special experiences in worship with God. We do have special experiences when uh, when we are alone with him. But when we rely on those moments as the solution to growth, Mm-hmm you can probably guess what starts to happen. You begin to seek those experiences as like you need them in order to be able to grow. So if you're not engaged in those experiences, if you're not having them, then there's nothing to spur your growth. I mean, I I often relate to Peter when he was up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and he was like, this is so awesome. Let's just build booths and stay here. Like it was the ultimate mountaintop experience. And yet... (laughs) 
<laughs> that was not the thing. They had to go back down the mountain and they had to re-engage in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I think I just relate to that wanting that. I used to, women's retreats used to be for me like those mountaintop moments, disconnect, plug in for a weekend, you know, just do that. But that can't be my source of strength and power all the time because you can't always have that experience. Mm-hmm. Means, not ends. Again, like right. when when we think about, we can become experience junkies. Yeah, that's a great descriptor where it's like, I just want to go to the next thing and I want to go to the big conference and I want to go to the big experience and I want to be wowed and I want to be, I want to, I want to cry. I want to, you know, yeah. I want that so that I can feel empowered to do my life. And it's like, that's not what those are for. Yeah. Well, and we, you know, it's funny in all these things we can, we are dethroning God when we don't right. have a holistic viewpoint, mm-hmm. um, when we overemphasize these points. So what we are often doing is using God to seek an experience. Mm. That's what starts to happen. In the mm-hmm. same way that in the Enlightenment view, we use God to bring rational um, uh, integration to all of our thinking. So like God of the gaps, we just use God to kind of fill the gaps so that we have a holistic viewpoint and in the actions, we want to be good people. So we'll use God to become good ethical people. In the same way with this, we use God to have these powerful experiences, to to kind of use his power to exert more force over our world. Yeah. And that starts getting real, real scary, real fast. So I guess <laughs> we're already into the analysis of this, but let's uh, let's keep digging into that. What does is, what is scripture have to say about all of this? Oh, scripture says quite a bit. <laughs> so in Romans, uh, Paul writes about the fact that, yes, we have an incredible power. It says that the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. That is the power that we have. So as followers of Jesus, yes, we do need a source of power. That is why just knowing is incomplete. That is why just doing is incomplete. We absolutely require the Spirit's power to do any of the things that we've been talking about, to make changes. And so the conflict or the thing that we run into is that we have been given the Spirit and we are to lean on His power in order to be able to live the life we've been called to live, but we often fall back. We we access the Spirit for experiences and like what we were just talking about, but then when it comes to actually living our lives we fall back on our own strength. And that's what Paul kind of talked about in Galatians. He's like, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish after starting in the spirit? Are you now finishing in the flesh? Mm. And so I think that with, when we're talking about power and the power to make good choices as followers of Jesus, we have the power that we need, but it's it's the Holy Spirit's power. The problem is that we often end up deflecting and saying, well, my power is because of the group I'm a part of. My power is actually be, be part of the church I'm a part of. Like, well, I'm part of this church, so that gives me authority or that gives me power. And that's like, we're, we're looking at the wrong thing. We have the Holy Spirit. And because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the power to do what he's called us to do. Yeah, without um, foreshadowing too, too much the next episode, I, I think about the difference between an encounter versus abiding. Mm, that's good. You know, that um, we seek the encounters. Now, that would be a really bad marriage if all you did was like those really special nice dates and those were the only times you ever m- met with your <laughs> spouse uh, versus abiding of like, what is the relationship we are truly forming together? 
Mm-hmm. And you can see how that starts to get really, really skewed because guess who's the center of this power thing? Mm. Me. Mm-hmm. And God can often become a means to my end. Yeah. When we were doing the putting this together and you used the phrase leveraging the Holy Spirit for my means. Mm. And that just that stuck with me because I thought how often I set a goal or I set a direction that I want to go. And then I pray and seek God to get to the end that I am seeking for myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's just, it's an easy trap to fall into. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think about the, um, there's such good here as you think about the rollout. There's something so beautiful about saying, I can't do it on my own. I need to rely on something, some mm-hmm. someone larger than me. Like I would rather take somebody today that's seeking to find some meaning and some purpose and some impact in some tribe or the universe or whatever. I'd rather that person than somebody who's so certain about reason being the thing that's going to solve all the problems or a complete awareness of, I can just, I can just will this into action. Like I'd rather that person who's like, I'm incomplete and I need to rely. (laughs) Like, so there's such good there. But, uh, you know, I think about Jesus when he talks about, he's talking to his disciples. Um, Linda, you probably know where this is. Um, You know where this, I shouldn't say probably, of course you know where this is. Uh, (laughs) But Jesus says, uh, do not lord power over each other the way the Gentiles do. If if you want to become great, you must become a servant. And I think a lot of this viewpoint, when overemphasized, becomes about me getting to the top and leading from the top and leading with power and uh, influence. And I think over the long run, there's some major, Mm -hmm. uh, we get very far from Jesus as we do that. And one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, is such a great example of, think of how much he knew Mm -hmm. from walking with Jesus. And think of you know, all the times he saw modeled for him good decisions. Yeah. And think of that mountaintop experience that he had mm-hmm. in the mountain transfiguration. Mm-hmm. And yet he denied Jesus three times. Yeah. So there's something else at play here. Mm-hmm. Which sets us up, I think, really beautifully for our next episode coming up. Bum, bum, bum. Yes. <laughs> so you may, be, you may have listened through all of this and you're saying, okay, all right. Um, this is cool. I've gotten three good pictures, uh, but they're all a little bit incomplete. Where do I go? Now, I'm not saying that we have every answer all figured out, but I am telling you that in the next episode, uh, you will hear, I, I think, a viewpoint that is deeply rooted in Scripture that uh, I have experienced, and I think we can all say around this table, we have all experienced change in our lives in mighty ways as we've entered into Mm -hmm. um, this viewpoint on growth and change. So uh, until then, uh, let's, let's rely, let's, let's look again at our viewpoints. And as we're wanting to change, I'm I'm hoping that you can realize there's value in what we know. Sure. Um, You're listening to this podcast because you value information and you're thinking, I want to think differently about things. My perspective on the world matters. And that is so true. And then we do want to say there's more. And so if you say, okay, then what I want to do is out of this 
episode, I want to really start wrestling with what are my viewpoints and how am I acting them out and can I act them out differently? Well, then you're falling into the second viewpoint. Yeah, You know what a good choice would be is to subscribe to the show and then get the next one. That would be an excellent decision. Boom. Nice. Action step right there. Look at how you fit that in. That's so nice. So, okay. So, so much good there, right? And then finally, I hope we can all rely more and more on on the power of God to see change come into our lives. Um, but as we do, uh, just know we are praying for you, and um, we're excited for the next episode that we'll release. We won't make you wait too long before we <laughs> release it uh, as we talk about where we are right now. Um, just a little preview. I think there are a lot of people right now who say, I don't want to change anymore because I don't think I can. Um, and so we're going to deal with that, mm-hmm. wrestle with that, and then talk about maybe a, a different way that we, the church, can't, that we, the church, won't follow in the same footsteps we have where we just reflect culture. Right. Maybe we can help lead culture in a different way by pointing to something far greater. Yes. That is a perfect place for us to end. And hey, if you'd like the show notes for this episode, um, just go to saddleback.com slash found and join our mailing list and we will get those to you right away. Yeah, there's so many great resources of books and quotes and all the articles that we researched to dive into this. We want to get those to you. We can't put all those links in the YouTube and podcast stuff. Right. There's not enough space. So we will email that to you. Just jump in and, uh, and kind of join our community that way. Friends, we love you and we are so grateful that you join us for these episodes and we just um, will be praying for you. We'll see you next time. This is a Saddleback Church podcast.